Thanks for taking the time to listen to these recordings of our Sunday morning sermons. The Door Church is one church in two locations on mission to see lives restored with the gospel for God's glory, and we'd love to have you join us. To learn more about our gatherings in Louisville and Argyle, Texas, visit our website at thedoorchurch.net. Now, let's worship God by opening His Word. Good morning. My name is Mark McPherson. I am over student ministry here at the Door Church and privileged to be on our preaching team. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, right after the book of Judges. We're starting our Advent sermon series this morning. That's entitled The Mothers of Jesus. This morning, our sermon title is called Ruth's Redemption. Ruth's Redemption. I love to read God's word pray and then get into God's word. I'm going to read from Ruth chapter 1 all the way from verse 1 to verse 14, and then I'm going to turn to Ruth chapter 4 and read from verses 13 to 22. Please follow along with me. The word of the Lord says in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Emelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left with her two sons, without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, And they went on their way to return from the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in, uh, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet have sons in my wombs that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to even uh, to have a husband. Even if I should say I have hope, even if I should uh, have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till, till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Please turn to chapter 4, starting in verse 13. The word of the Lord says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. 
They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amimadad. Amimadad fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Church, please pray with me. Father, I just pray that this morning we'd see the beauty of your story. I pray that we'd see that you have been working to redeem. God, I just pray that our eyes would see the beauty of Advent, that you came into the world to redeem us, that you went to a cross to suffer in our place, and that you rose from the grave, defeating death in our place. And Father, I just pray that we'd look to King Jesus and we'd wait for his second Advent eagerly for him to return and make all things new. We pray that we would see that this morning in your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let it bless King Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. It's Christmas. It's Christmas season. Christmas is all about the coming of Jesus. That's what Advent means. And so we're actually in between two Advents. The first Advent when Jesus came into the world and died our death on the cross, and the second advent is when he returns. And so this Christmas season in our sermon series, The Mothers of Christ, what we want to do is look at these particular people who are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus' line. And you look at Matthew 1, you see the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and you see something very special about it. There is an inclusion of women. These women are are brought into this genealogy, which is very rare in those days and in that time. But they're there on purpose. They're there on purpose. And Jesus wants us to see that. And we pray that we can see that this season, that we'd see the mothers of Jesus. These women are in the genealogy, but they are not uh, people there because they have an amazing status or because they've done amazing things, but because God has worked through them. The women that we will cover in the mothers of Jesus are women of questionable character. They're ethnic outcasts. One is even a prostitute. The question is, why would Jesus use these women? Why would he use these women in such a time where women were not high in society. They didn't have a high status. Why would he use women with questionable character and outcasts? Why? We want to see that Jesus uses these women to show us, to show us who he came for, to show us who he claims as his own, to bring hope to the hopelessness. We want to see that he has come for the sinner, the outcast, and the hopeless. One of my favorite movies is The Dark Knight. Uh, it's a Batman movie. And, and in this Batman movie, what's happening in, this, in one part of the movie is that, that there's a guy named Harvey Dent uh, and there's a lady named Rachel. And Batman loves Rachel and Harvey Dent loves Rachel. It's like a Batman love triangle. And they're both locked up in this building and the, both of these buildings are going to explode. And the Joker is messing with Batman, and the Joker gives Batman the wrong address. And so Batman thinks he's going to save this lady named Rachel, but he breaks into the building and ends up saving Harvey Dent. He ends up saving the guy. And as Batman breaks in to save Harvey Dent, Harvey Dent is lying there on the floor covered in oil, and he screams out and he says, No, not me. 
Not me. Why did you come for me? Why are you coming for me? This Christmas season, as we see the rescuer come, as we see the Savior come, do your, does your heart scream? Does, do our hearts scream? No, not me. Do our hearts scream? Why are you coming for me? I think it's easy for some of us to say, yes, I'm a sinner. But to look deeper and to see our hearts crying out, no, not me. I'm not an outcast. I'm not hopeless. As we look at the story of Ruth, as we begin this Advent season, looking at the mothers of Jesus, I want to see three things. Three things. I want to see the story, the sincereness, and the sacrifice. The story, the sincereness, and the sacrifice. First, the story of significance. Ruth has a story of significance. Uh, when I was uh, last at my uncle's church, my uncle has a church in San Diego, uh, we were there and I was talking and he had a visitor. He was a senator of South Carolina. He actually just got reelected. His name is Tim Scott. And my uncle and Tim Scott were having this conversation and I was just a fly on the wall. I got to listen to what they were talking about. And Tim Scott was talking about getting reelected and what that takes and, and how they've realized that they've actually done studies which I, this is very ironic. They've done studies. They have numbers and stats and statistics that will show you that if you give people numbers, stats, and statistics, it won't change their mind. It won't change the way they feel about a politician. It won't change the way they vote. That you hurl numbers, facts, and statistics at people, it won't change them. And what he said, which I wrote down many years ago, and I always hold tightly, is that it's stories that move the needle. It's stories that move the needle. It's stories that change the heart. As we come to God's word, do we come to it looking for facts? I mean, there's a lot of beautiful wisdom and poetry and facts in the Bible. Do we come to it looking for just numbers, Bible verses that we can memorize to help change our lives? Do we come to it looking for statistics of how we can be better people? Or does the story of the Bible move you? Does the story of Jesus coming into the world move you? Is it moving you? As we look at the story of Ruth, I want to break it down. I'll try to explain it to you as best I can, as quick as I can. There's four big parts of the story of Ruth. There's famine and loss. There's a journey home. There's a sacrifice and there's the redemption. And so the story of Ruth in a nutshell is this. There's a man named Elimelech that we read about and he marries this lady named Naomi. They have two sons. They are in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. But there's a famine and so they flee to Moab and they have uh, these two sons. They marry Orpah. It's Orpah. I apologize now if I say Oprah. It's Orpah and Ruth, and they have uh, these, their sons marry these two women, and then what we see is that Elimelech and both the sons die, and the women remain. And in this time, this is the most bleak scenario. This is the scariest thing. They've lost their provision. They've lost their protection. They've lost their source of income. They've lost their social status. This is, this is drastic so what Naomi tries to do, what she decides is best is to go home. She says, this is the safest option for me. And so Orpah and Ruth decide, hey, we're going to come with you. But Naomi stops them in their tracks. 
She stops them and she blesses them. She says this in verse 8. She says, go return each of you to, my, uh, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grants you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she uses the Lord, Yahweh. She's saying, let my God, my covenant language is Yahweh. She's saying, this, let my God bless you. Let my God deal you rest. And what she's saying is, you might have other Moabite gods that you grow up with, but let my God bless you. Let my God give you life. And what Naomi is doing is she's really saying, listen, I need you to stay here. This is for your life. This is for your good. This is for your protection. And I will go on my own. And I will risk it all. She's saying, I want to give you your life back. Your, your life for mine. And what we see in the text is that Orpah, she weeps and she kisses her mother-in-law, but she stays in Moab and she returns to her home. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Ruth is showing this amazing loyalty because what's happening in her heart is radical change. What's happening in her heart is she is changing, seeing the courage, seeing the sacrifice of Naomi. She's being changed by it. In verse 16, this is what Ruth says. He says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Ruth sees in Naomi the sacrificial love that her God has. And Ruth is changed by it. Ruth sees the nature of God through Naomi and she's changed by it. And she says, whoever is guiding you, whoever your God is, he shall be my God. She's attracted to the sacrificial love that she sees through her mother-in-law. And she follows and loyalty is her response. The story continues as Ruth goes back to Jerusalem with Naomi and Ruth begins to glean in the fields as a way to provide for the widows and the homeless. And so Ruth takes up the hard job of, of going out each day and picking up crops. And if you don't know what gleaning is, it's in the Old Testament, it's how God provided for the homeless. And so if you, when people were collecting their crops, if one of their crops were to hit the ground, then that was free for the homeless. They couldn't pick that back up. That was for the widow and for the homeless. That's how God provided for the homeless. It'd be like if you were in Whataburger and you picked up your cup of fries and one of those fries fell and hit the tray, now that's for everybody. So I can come up to that tray and pick up that fry because it fell out of your cup. Don't try that in real life. Please don't do that. Don't try it with me either because I'll come get you. But that's what gleaning was. And, and so Ruth is working tirelessly and Boaz sees her from afar and he begins to protect her. He tells his men, you're not going to harm this lady and we're going to make sure that she is provided for. And then these two end up having this conversation and they kind of get a little flirty and, and they get to know one another. And then what we see is Ruth understands uh, that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer to Naomi. So Naomi is telling her, this man has the right to redeem me, redeem the lamb that we lost when Elimelech died. He has the ability to give you a son, give you a daughter so that our lineage can live on. He's a kinsman redeemer. And so Ruth listens to the advice of Naomi and she gets all dolled up and all pretty and all smell good. And she goes and lays down at the feet of Boaz. And Boaz, seeing her courage to propose, that's what she's doing. She's proposing. 
Boaz sees her and respects her and he takes care of her and he makes sure that no one sees her leaving in the morning. He says, we're going to do this the right way. And we're going to make sure that no one sees you and we're going to protect your reputation and I'm going to go do everything possible to marry you. I'm going to go make sure that we do this the right way. And he treats her with utmost respect. He ends up redeeming Naomi. He ends up redeeming the land. He ends up marrying Ruth and they end up having a child named Obed. And this is, is crucial, this, this, this son that comes through the line, because what Obed does is he continues the line of the Messiah. He continues this line that was spoken about in Genesis when God said to Eve that you will have one, one seed that will come, and he will crush the serpent. He is going to continue that lineage because Obed will father Jesse, and Jesse will father David. And God's going to come and speak to David, and he's going to tell David that you're going to have one in your line who's going to sit on this throne, and his kingdom will not be destroyed, and his line will last forever. It will be King Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what this does, it brings radical significance to a little Moabite woman in the Middle East. Ruth's story has an amazing significance to it. The story of Ruth, the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is a story of purpose. That as people are faithful to God, they are faithful to his people and faithful trusting him. It's a story of relationships, beautiful relationships that as people are bonded to God, they're bonded to one another. And it's a story of courage, profound courage, that as these people understand that they have everything in their, in their God, that they can risk everything. It's an amazing story, Ruth's story. And the beauty of Ruth's story is that it's our reality. It's our reality that in the face of uncertainty, we could be grounded, we could be built on the rock that is Jesus Christ, we can be grounded and know that our lives have great purpose. Our lives have meaningful and beautiful relationships that can be eternal and we can live with great courage because Jesus Christ has defeated the grave and that we have eternal life in him. We should have an amazing purpose to our lives, beautiful relationships in our lives and an immense courage as we trust in the sovereignty of God. We trust in the fact that he is ruling and reigning and he's in control. And if Christ is on the throne and he is in control, what amazing realities that means for us that everything in our lives has purpose. That he's ruling all things. He's controlling all things. That means everything that we do, every place that we go to interact, every time we choose food to eat has meaning to him. It has purpose to him. Our lives have meaning. Every relationship we have. Every person we speak to is an image bearer of God that he longs to redeem and either doesn't know him yet or is your brother and sister in eternity. What a joy that is that every single person, every relationship we have has great meaning. And if Christ is king, it means every time that we have the courage to battle against principalities, to battle against sin, to every time we choose righteousness over sin, it has great meaning to the king. That means we are serving him and we're not doing it for ourselves. The sovereignty of God is a beautiful thing. Knowing that he's in control, he's placing everything together. When I first became a Christian, uh, I was still a wrestling coach and I used to ride my bike to practice in the morning. And I remember riding my bike. I used to ride my bike down the same path every single day, but I'm riding my bike this day and I'm looking and I'm looking. The sun is rising and the sky was orange and pink and there's a, a flock of geese flying over me. I just wept. I'm just saying, I had to get off my bike. I'm just crying. Old, old people passing me by, like, why is this kid crying for? I'm just weeping. 
because I see that God's putting the day together. I'm with my wife the other day. She sees the sunset. She goes, look at the sunset. Oh, it's so sweet. And I look at it and I turn back this way and she's just crying because it's a love letter that God's writing her. She sees it. God has everything on purpose. And when we walk by faith and not by sight, when we walk by seeing that he's in control, it's a great joy and significance to our story. There's a movie called The Book of Eli where Denzel Washington is in this post-apocalyptic, this utopian world, and he's trying to get the Bible to a printing press. It's the last Bible. He's trying to get it across the country to a printing press. And uh, he has this young lady, Mila Kunis, is helping him do that. And they're walking, they're walking. She's like, how do we know we're going the right way? He goes, "We, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're walking by faith, not by sight. And she goes, that doesn't make any sense. And he says this, he says, it doesn't have to make sense. It's faith, it's faith. It's, it's the flower of the light in the field of darkness that's giving me the strength to carry on. She goes, wow, that's beautiful. Is that from your book? And he goes, no, that's Johnny Cash from Folsom Prison. But it's faith. But it's faith. It's seeing what God sees. Seeing that he's in control. Seeing that he's sovereign. Seeing that he's moving all things together. And when we're moved, when we are moved of the story of Christ, that he came down, a baby in a manger, lived a perfect life and died on the cross for us to redeem us, that by faith we could be redeemed, we could have his perfect righteousness given to us as, as if we've never sinned. And he longs to bring us into new heavens and new earth. As, we, uh, as that story begins to change us, as we're moved by that story, our lives take on an eternal perspective in which we have a purpose and our relationships and even our own courage are all a part of his sovereign plan, which means that every moment in our life brings us an awe. It brings us an awe and wonder knowing that we're a part of his story, that every single one of us has a story that's significant and is worth him dying on the cross for. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. We have an inheritance because he died on the cross for us and our inheritance is him. We have a relationship with the king, with the Lord of lords and the king of kings and we will walk into a new life with him, an eternal life with him. We have him as our inheritance and everything is working out towards his will. We can be grounded in knowing that everything in our life has purpose and our lives are significant to him. It's a story of significance. Does your story have significance? Does your story have significance? Secondly, there's a sincereness throughout the book of Ruth. A sincereness. There's a certainty that leads to sincereness. A certainty that leads to sincereness. Are you certain that your story matters? Are you certain that your story matters? Are you certain that you're part of his story and not just history? Are you certain that you're a part of his story and not just history? Because throughout the book of Ruth, what we see is that the, the, the beautiful character of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz is that they are certain of who their God is. And as they are certain of who their God is, they become people who live sincere lives. They live sincere lives. Naomi is certain of who her God is. She's absolutely certain of who her God is and it leads her to have a sincere love for those around her. 
Naomi sees others as more important than herself. She sees others as more important than herself. She even talks about it when she speaks about herself. If you look in chapter 1 and verse 20, it says this. She says, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She's saying, even as she sees herself, she sees herself through the lens of the Almighty. That he has dealt bitter with me, so call me bitter. That's what Mara means. She says, he's dealt with me this way. Just just think about what she's dealing with. Even as she has an internal struggle, she's doing it under the watchful eye of the Almighty. That she can struggle with who she is, but she doesn't struggle with whose she is. She might struggle with who she is, but not whose she is. She knows she's in the hands of the Almighty. She has lost her husband. She has lost her sons. And she's lost her protection and her provision. She's lost her social status. She's lost so much. And yet, as she walks home, she sees these two young ladies, these two daughters-in-law of her, and she says, no, no, you will not follow me. No, I see you, you have a life in the future and I will risk, I will offer my life and risk being on my own in danger that you two might have a better life, that you two might have husbands. She blesses them because she sees them as more important in herself, even in her struggling. And Naomi is certain that the Almighty sees her, which makes her sincerely see her daughters-in-law in the same kind of love that the Almighty shows her. She has a certainty and walks in sincereness. Ruth is the same. Ruth has a certainty of who her God is and she sincerely loves others around her and she serves others as, most, as more important than herself. She serves others as most important as herself. In chapter one, verses 16 and 17, she says this. She says, do not urge me from leave you or to return from following you for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. She knows whose she is, so she knows where she's going. She said, it don't matter where you go. It don't matter where you lodge. Your God is going to be my God. Your people is going to be my people. And your grave is going to be my grave. And if you are going to have new heavens and new earth, and you're going to go to heaven, Naomi, I'm going with you. She knows whose she is, and so she knows where she's going. So in the face of adversity, she lives out serving Naomi with an amazing courage. She goes into a foreign land, which could you imagine the anxiety? I'm with students all the time, and they tell me all the stories. It's a new school year. I don't know. It's a new team. This is a whole new Starbucks. They don't even know my order. There's so much anxiety of going into a new place. She courageously goes out into the fields and she gleans and she works hard and it's dangerous. She is offering herself at the feet of Boaz. She's making herself the most vulnerable to be rejected, to, to, be, to be thrown away by, by, by Boaz. I mean, I don't know how many ladies we see proposing to their fellows nowadays. She is making herself vulnerable, and she does it all courageously because she has a heart to serve, because she knows that she's already been taken care of. See, Ruth is certain of who her God is, and she's certain of her call in her life, which makes her sincerely care for others no matter the fear and trouble in front of her. 
We see it in Boaz as well. Boaz is certain of who his God is. And so he has a sincere love for others around him. He restores others as more important than himself. He restores others as more important than himself. As him and Ruth are talking, and Ruth is saying thank you to him in chapter 2. This is how Boaz responds in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He knows the true giver of the reward. He knows the true giver of refuge. Boaz speaks to Ruth and says, thank him, not him. It's about him. It's not about him. And so he knows who his God is. And so he deals kindly with Ruth. He protects her. He's a gentleman. He protects her reputation. He does everything he can to marry an outsider, which back in that day was not heard of. It was breaking social norms. He, but yet he marries her and he gives her a son and he redeems Naomi and the land in a process. He brings restoration. Boaz is certain who the true giver of the gifts is. He knows he's not the giver of the gifts, but he knows the true giver of the gift, which makes him a sincere vessel for God to work through and to bless others. He knows that it's not about him. He knows who he belongs to. And so he lives sincerely for others. That's Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. It says, and they have conquered him, that's the evil one, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death, that we today know that we have been covered by the blood of the lamb, that we have been forgiven because he paid the penalty that we deserve and he rose to feed in the grave. And so we are covered by the blood of the lamb and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've seen Christ crucified with the eyes of our heart and he lives in us by the power of his spirit. And so now we have a testimony. It's his story and our story. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and the words of our testimony, we begin to realize that our lives are about him and we don't care about our own lives even unto death. There's a certainty that you have in him that leads you to live a life of sincereness. When I was a a wrestling coach, I, I ended up, you know, I was just running a club. I didn't make a lot of money, and I was really down and out, and I was living with my mom, and my, my girlfriend, who's my wife now, she said, you know, you got a couple months to figure this out, or we're going to have a serious conversation. And then my mom said, you got a couple months to figure this out, or you're going to be kicked out of my house. And I kept saying, God going to do something. God going to do something. And I went and talked to Scott. I said, Scott, man, my mom's really mad, and my, my wife, well, my girlfriend at the time, she's really mad, and I think things are going to go real bad. And Scott says, what are you going to do? I said, well, man, I'll just be homeless. It's that simple. I'll live under a bridge, and then I'll get on top of the bridge and preach Jesus from the bridge. I said, well, John the Baptist is this bad boy. I'll just be homeless, and I'll preach Jesus. Come on. And Scott goes, you're crazy. Why don't you come work here? And that's how I got the job here. My life was not about myself. It was about pointing to the glories of Christ. And it led me to a place of sincerely serving. And hear me, there's days I know where I'm not walking by the Spirit. There's days when I walk around and I let people judge me with their eyes. And maybe they are and maybe they aren't. But internally, it's all about Him. And when I see people, I know I can be quick to judge them back. Even if they aren't judging me. Because my life is centered around me. But when my eyes are on the King... And I see the cross, that he loved me and he died for me and that I'm so loved by him. Well, it's only then that I truly go out and sincerely love others. 
It's where my eyes are focused. When I was a kid, my dad was a professional boxer and he used to have these clinics at the mall with all these kind of martial arts guys. He would have jujitsu and karate. And, uh, you know, I love to go to those clinics because there's all these different kind of martial arts guys would show up. And I'd show up and, and I'd be, uh, you know, I could, I could box as a kid. I used to throw my hands with my dad all the time. But when I showed up to the clinics, I was, all, I was always doing kicks. So I'd jump up, spin and do a kick. And, and I was doing all these kind of karate kicks. And the karate guy came up to my dad and said, Man, your son's got some technique, man. Where did he learn how to do all these kicks? And my dad said, every Saturday morning, 7 o'clock, Power Rangers. Just watch the Power Rangers. Those are my instructors. Because where my eyes are is what I'll imitate. Where my, are, where my eyes are is what we imitate. Where our eyes are, you imitate. Now, when you begin to see that your life has such significance, because you know who, that you, you, know who you belong to, And you're certain that you know that you belong to King Jesus because you are certain that that grave is empty. You begin to take your eyes off of yourself and begin to place your eyes on the King. And every opportunity of your life is a moment in which you can see others more important than yourself because the King sees you. And so you don't have to be puffed up, but you can actually encourage others. And every moment when you have an opportunity to serve someone, you know that the King has served you. And so that you go out and you serve people with just giving them your time. And every time that you see that there's a moment to restore someone, you know that the King has restored you. And you could speak good news to them. You could bring light into darkness. Do you see see yourself in his story? Do you see yourself in his story? Lastly, there's the sacrifice. The sacrifice of the story. And there's a savior of sacrificial love. Does your heart ache to be full? Does your heart ache to be full? Are you in the house of bread this morning and yet in spiritual famine? See, the story of Ruth is riddled with sacrifice. Naomi is sacrificing her future and her safety for a dollar's in law. Ruth is courageously sacrificing herself to be Naomi's caregiver. Boaz is sacrificing his goods and his reputation that he might restore Ruth and Naomi and Naomi and underlining this story, underlining this amazing story of God's sovereignty weaving through Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, underlining all of it is that Jesus is ultimately coming to say that I'm going going to be the great sacrifice. I am the ultimate king and Messiah who's in control and I'm coming for your safety and I'm coming for your care and I'm coming for your reputation. Throughout the whole story, what we see is that Jesus is the one who comes and fills the ache in our hearts. He is the one who wants to give our story significance. He is the bread of life that fills us when we are in spiritual famine. He is the true and better Jesus is the true and better Naomi. When Naomi just offers her life, when she says, I'll go my own way, she just offers her life. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to actually come and lay my life down. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I willingly lay my life down. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life. Jesus actually came and laid it down for us. Jesus is the better Ruth who courageously goes and offers himself as a sacrifice for sinners, as the Father pours out his wrath, and as Jesus got to taste that in the garden, he's sitting there stressed. But even in his stress, he's courageous and says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is the better Boaz, the redeemer, not just of one family, but of the household of God. 
who doesn't wait for us to stumble into his field, but he came rushing off the throne that he might be born in the dirt and go to that cross to redeem us. He's the true redeemer. And he came into the world and he was cursed on a tree, taking the brokenness that's within all of us and taking the brokenness in this world and he's putting it to death. Then all that in him all things would be made new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, in him, the new has come. In him, there's an eternal significance to your story. In him, there's an eternal certainty that you have to live out a life of a sincere life because the truth of the gospel is that Jesus clung to you. That as Ruth clung to Naomi, Jesus came and clung to us by clinging himself to that cross. He clung to us. It's his story of sacrificial love in your story. It's his story in your story that he wants to use to show the world redemption. He wants to use you as a vessel to show the gospel to the world. That in your story, as you praise King Jesus, you would be a light in darkness. You would be the salt of the earth. You would be the people that say, it's him. It's not him. It's him, not him. See, we see in Batman that Harvey Dent, he lost his loved one. And it leads him to turn to evil. But for us, as we see the loss of Christ on the cross, when we see the death of our loved one on the cross, we have so much more truth than poor Harvey. What we see is a Savior who loved us first, who came down for us first, that even while we were sinners, he came and died for us. What we see is a Savior who loved us even while we were sinners. What we see is a love that was resurrected, that his death was not the end, but it was only the beginning for us. And we see a love that resurrects us, that gives us new life. It's the beauty of Ruth's story is Jesus in her story. The beauty of your story is Jesus in your story. The beauty of Christmas is knowing that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords humbled himself to come down and be your Redeemer. This morning, let's worship the King of Kings, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Redeemer. Let's eagerly wait for him to come again. Let's pray. Father, you are good and mighty and you are in control. You are working all things out for your good and for the good of those who love you. I pray that you, by your spirit, would open our eyes to the truth of Advent, the truth of Christmas, that we need to rescue. And even when we cried, no, not me, I don't need rescue, you came and you rushed down you bore our penalty for us and you died in our place for us and you rose victoriously for us. And I pray with the eyes of our hearts, we'd see that this morning in Christ Jesus. Christ, I pray that you open the eyes of the hearts of your church and of the blind this morning to see that every moment they have, every one of their stories is significant and has meaning. Spirit, I pray that you would lead us out that your presence would be here with us this morning, that as we go out this week, we would walk with you, stay in step with you, to see others more important than ourselves, to serve others and to restore others. Let us walk with you this week. Let us see all you're doing and let us weep with joy, knowing that you've restored, 
you redeemed. Thank you for saving wretches like us. Jesus, thank you for spilling your blood that we might be new. We thank you. We praise you. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.